listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Experimental. Expansive. Audiovisual. Louise Harris is an electronic and audiovisual composer. She is also a lecturer in sonic and audiovisual practices at the University of Glasgow. Louise specializes in the creation and exploration of audiovisual relationships utilizing electronic music and computer-generated visual environments, and her work encompasses fixed media, live performance, and large-scale installation format. Thank you so much, Louise, for, uh, for being on the podcast and, um, and joining us here. We, uh, we only met about a month ago or so? Yeah, about that, yep. Yeah, yeah at, at Bowling Green at the Kier, um 5 anniversary uh, event. And when were when were you at Bowling Green uh, doing your residency there? I was there last April, so April twenty sixteen. And that what what kind of did you focus on in that in that residency? Uh, I focused on trying to get five little miniatures finished over the course of those uh, two weeks. So I went with a, a library of sounds that I wanted to play with, most of which actually I recorded um, whilst teaching um, in Glasgow. Uh, just because there was a whole load of interesting stuff that we'd been doing for kind of sound design for narrative film and I thought well this would be fun to play with this stuff um so I turned up with a whole bunch of sounds and no particular idea what I was going to do with them and just decided by the end of these two weeks I would have five two minute pieces um finished and kind of ready to go so that's what I did and that was and those were your Kier miniatures right they were indeed yes but the piece that I saw um, was not the Kira miniatures. It was a piece called Alakas. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a pretty that's a pretty brand new piece, right? It's a very brand new piece. Yeah. I think I, I the version that you saw was finished about two days before you saw it. So. Oh my god. <laughs> it was ext- extremely new. <laughs> yeah. Really. Um, so that that piece is a. Um, a piece for sound and visuals. So before we before we even get into it, I should say that um, the pieces that we talk about that do have visuals and the Kier miniatures are one of is one of those pieces, right? It does have uh, yeah, it does. a, a yeah. visual component. Um, so all of these pieces can be found at your Vimeo, right? Yep, and they're also on my website too. Um, actually, the Kier miniatures were written for uh, full dome projection, so they're they're designed to be. Um, experienced in planetarium format so if anyone should oh, have boy. access to a planetarium um <laughs> and want to watch them in there then uh, that's that's where they should be watched planetarium with ambisonic sound so it's quite a it's a rare set yeah. to come across <laughs> um but you never know what people might have out there you know these days you can get inflatable planetaria so who knows really yeah I've, you can. i've never heard of that yeah that's awesome I, I did a piece for planetarium in um in a festival in slovenia a couple of years ago um, and they got in touch a few months before I was due to go out and said, by the way, we've got this inflatable planetarium. Do you want to do a piece for it? I'm like, oh, OK, sure. Why not? It's a very odd thing. Yeah, I suppose that's the, maybe the most efficient way to have a planetarium. Well, yeah, I mean, that's to all you need by. is a all you need <laughs> is a domed flat surface. Right. So, yeah, yeah. It kind of looks like an inverse bouncy castle when you go to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, it, I think it would be cool if they had a bouncy castle in the in the bouncy planetarium you know that would be cool yeah i was really disappointed when i went in that the seats weren't kind of squidgy and bouncy they just had normal seats which wow. thought was a bit of a shame yeah that's kind of a drag it's a missed so opportunity. so this piece alakas um uh-huh. the the visuals for this piece really drew me to to your work they have i i thought they had a kind of gravity i mean it's for uh it's for two screens right mm-hmm. and it's yep. for and it, you call uh, it's called the extended audiovisual format Expanded audiovisual. Expanded, format, yeah. Extended is fine as well. Yeah, the the eef, right? <laughs> um, so you yeah. have uh, you have visuals on either side. So the viewer, when they experience this piece, they can't they can only see one screen at a time, right? Yeah, yeah. So kind of tell me about that. What's the what's the motivation for for that? Um, I think the primary motivation. Well, there's a couple of things. One is um, historically, I've been really kind of massively preoccupied with the relationship between sound and image in my works to the point where I would only have one single screen because I didn't want people to be looking at other stuff. I wanted them to just be focusing on on the single kind of visual representation. And then when I was writing the piece Platon, which we'll talk about later, 
I had two very distinct sort of senses of what I wanted the the visuals to look like. One of which was kind of a like a sort of a very far zoomed out perspective on on these um, objects that were happening um, in the space, and one of them was sort of a very close in perspective on the same thing. Um, and for me, I think. Well, first of all, I thought, well, why why do I feel like I only need one? Why, why am I kind of mm-hmm. limited by this tyranny of single screen? Surely I can I can sort of work around that. Um, and so for me, it was a way of sort of presenting two different perspectives on the same visual environment. Um, and with Alakas, it's kind of what I've done again, although in different ways. So the, the fundamental programming underlying the two screens is the same but the way in which they manifest over the course of the of the piece and the way in which they interact with the the sound um, is different. So um, you're sort of looking at like an overview of these kind of complex particle systems and then you're looking at a very kind of close-in uh, perspective on, on, on it at the same time. So um, if... If people are going to go to your Vimeo or your website, which they absolutely should to watch this, uh, um, because we're going to listen to a, um, we're going to listen to it later. But you know, you 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 really should go watch it. And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, on a podcast, that's not something we can handle. But um, when uh, when they're looking at this, what what are they seeing? Like what what are the visuals? Are they representative of anything? Are they purely abstract? Like how how did you come to those visuals? Well. <laughs> Historically, with my visuals, I've never, I've tried to not work with things that are representational of other things, if that makes sense. So I don't Mm -hmm. work with footage. I have worked with footage, um, like filmed footage, but I don't tend to. I tend to only work with computer generated imagery. And what I'm interested in doing is working with very simple geometric forms. So usually circles, triangles, squares, um, rectangles, um, lines. And using those in such a way that they create really complex visual environments, but that the fundamental building blocks are these very, um, very simple forms. Um, with Alakas, the, the sonic material is a combination of things. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of algorithmic, well, it's not sort of algorithmic, it is algorithmic. The, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, it's, the, it's a wee bit algorithmic. It's a wee bit algorithmic, yeah. Um, so the the backbone for it is is algorithmic, and it's just a series of sine tones um, that build up gradually over a period of time um, into different clusters of of tones and frequencies, um, and that's that all um, was algorithmic up to the center point, and then it becomes palindromic because it goes reverses on itself, so it's the same forward as it is backwards. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to pair these very synthetic sounds with sort of a more organic version of the same sound so the 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 instrumental material in there is me playing the flute embarrassingly enough um and there's also some of my voice in there as well um and the this is complicated and long-winded and i apologize if this gets boring sorry everyone if you're bored by now um (laughs) but what i wanted to do with the visuals i kind of the way that i was thinking about the tones uh that both the synthetic and the more kind of um, acoustic sounds was in kind of circular form so I sort of thought of them each as being circular but as having kind of these granular textural qualities to them through mm-hmm. the way that they interact with each other so the the four channels of the piece are designed that depending on where you listen to it there should be different kind of cancellations and crossovers of frequency um, depending on both the space that it's in and also how you move around in the space. Mm-hmm. So on the one screen, you've got these complex particle systems that originate from a circular shape in the middle and then have these different forms of attraction, forces of attraction emanating out again in circular shapes from the middle. So you have something like, I think, about 1,500 particles in each one of these systems that are themselves all circles that are attached to each other. Um, and the sort of... the timbre and the and the texture of these kind of combined synthetic and acoustic sounds is how I wanted to sort of reflect that with these these sort of very um granular almost visual movements but that are constrained by by a particular form if that does that make sense I think so yeah I mean when you when you watch it it definitely like the the initial image that kind of came to me when I was watching it it seemed like I was looking at 
kind of a black hole system, you know, that yeah. some, something that has extreme gravity or or in the opposite case, something that has extreme repulsion. Yes. Um, yeah. So so I I remember when I uh, when I was watching it at the at the concert at, at uh, Bowling Green, it kind of seemed to me that there were there there was a link between the um, maybe the intervallic content of the sound and the maybe pulsations of the circles was that was I just interpreting that or no is no that, that's, that is correct yeah so the the frequency so the frequencies of the sounds are tied to how um sort of uh, reactive each individual circle is to to the forces of attraction and repulsion that are attached to it mm-hmm. um so the higher the pitch the more reactive um the the little particle system will be mm-hmm. and on the other side you have it it almost looks like they're they're strands of dna or you know <laughs> like like very uh simple molecules or something like that were yeah. you I, I mean was this were, were you actually taking scientific data for either of the visuals and kind of coding it into the movements of the shapes and particles or was were you just working with these very basic uh geometric shapes and then kind of well what tell us what you're doing <laughs> okay well so the second screen is just it's these strings of uh, again circles that are attached to each other um and each string has a different uh, behavior so some of them are very reactive to the sound that they are sort of attached to um either the amplitude or the frequency of that sound and some of them are much less reactive so you get ones mm-hmm. that really kind of move around an awful lot and others that just sort of gradually meander through space mm-hmm. um as time goes on the sort of the the way in which the sound is sort of taken and worked on by the code um is essentially the same in both but just the manifestations of of how that actually looks is very different and what i wanted to do with the it's interesting that you say dna um but that i sort of wanted to think of as a very kind of like zoomed in kind of microscopic perspective on one of the kind of circular systems in the in the particle oh okay you're right systems on the left Uh uh-huh so um so yeah so that's that's what that is doing so you get this very kind of this sort of overview on one side and there's a very microscopic perspective um on the other and you you also do uh like you said that you also do large scale installation works do does this piece work as an can it work as a as an installation be meaning that that is it only in fixed format or is the is the code capable of you know be generating on and on and on um it could yeah i mean at the moment if it was an installation it would have to be fixed so um it couldn't be interactive because it's very very processor intensive uh-huh. So that the version that we watched, I think, took my poor 2013 MacBook about four days <laughs> just to render the visuals. Oh man! So, <laughs> so, um, and that's only ten minutes long. So, if you wanted to do something that was in real time, it would be um, it would be tricky. But it's certainly not out yeah. of the realms of possibility. It's just right. a, it's the sheer number, particularly of the 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 one with all the circles there's you know i think there's 12 different systems and each yeah. system has within it something like 15 different forces of attraction and repulsion and then there are 1500 particles within each one of those so it's it's quite a lot to calculate in real time what uh what software are you using to do all this uh, i use processing for visuals which is a java based uh language for dealing with uh, graphics it's mm-hmm. open source and very lovely and if anyone is interested you should go to processing.org which is their website and it has if you're keen to sort of get started with processing there's lots of really good tutorials but there's also a really lovely exhibition that shows you what people are doing with um with processing and, and how do did... usually sorry sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i usually use uh, max for my sound sometimes pd depending on how i'm feeling um, and sometimes, sometimes depending little... if you want a really, really pared down visual experience yeah, yeah. On, the, on the music side. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, I will also use Reaper, but usually Max. Certainly for the algorithmic stuff, I tend to, to go Max and then, mm-hmm. then maybe finesse it a little bit in Reaper afterwards. 
All right, so now we're going to uh, listen to only the audio for Alakas. And um, again, if you uh, if you like what you hear and are wondering what's happening on both screens uh, when all these sounds are going on, go to uh, go search Louise Harris on Vimeo or just go to your website, which is uh, it's louiseharris.co.uk. So this is Alakas.
how did you get interested in in pairing audio and visual or audio and video? I mean, what what was kind of the Kickstarter to to that initial interest? Um, well, I could I could sort of approach this from a few different ways. I've been always fascinated with um, music for narrative film since I was two and my parents first took me to the cinema. They tell me that we, we went to see Pinocchio and apparently I just sat there with my mouth wide open for the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and I still remember it, so it must have been quite transformative. Um, so when I was a kid, I always thought I wanted to write music for film, as we all do, I think, at some point. Um, and then as I started studying at university, I realised I was kind of more interested in working experimentally with music. Um, and I studied... Uh, music at Oxford, which is not the most experimental place in the world. Um, <laughs> and then went on to do a master's um, in acoustic composition and then a PhD. And when I started doing my PhD, I was writing just um, acoustic music, sort of specialising in vocal music. And at the time was going to a lot of digital arts festivals, which there, at the time, this was the late 2000s, so about 2007, 2008, in the UK was a really good time for visual and digital arts festivals, but particularly in the north of England, because there was a lot of funding around for that kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time just going to see unfamiliar things and hear unfamiliar things. And I think that's where the interest first came from. But the first piece that I made that was audiovisual was um, I was midway through the first year of my PhD and I was kind of frustrated with writing um, vocal music and it wasn't felt like it wasn't going anywhere. And I was at a, an exhibition at a gallery called Sight in Sheffield and there was a slide projector. It was a terrible exhibition. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I remember thinking it was it was awful. But the, the slide projector in this room um, that was projecting these these images onto the wall made this incredible kind of thunking and clunking sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so having not done so before, I went and found a microphone and portable recording kit from the university and took it down to the gallery and recorded this sound. Um, and sort of made my first, um, I guess, electroacoustic piece, you'd call it. Um, and when I had finished that, it was about eight minutes long, it's called Sight, funnily enough, um, I got this really strong sense of this grid of squares that would transition from uh, black to white in mm-hmm. relation to the sound. Um, and just sort of, I don't know why, I just sort of thought, right, I need to make this thing this is this is what it needs to look like um so fortunately i had an amazing um mentor at sheffield a guy called dave moore who was the technician there then and he taught me how to write code in processing um and then i built my first visual environment and and that was that and that was about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. so so yeah that was how i i got into working with with sound and image simultaneously. I think it's something I've always wanted to do. And I have written for, um, I've written acoustic music for film, but, um, but this sort of seems to, seems to fit. It's a little, little, it's like a little bit of my brain got switched on when I was making that piece and it's been completely taking over the rest of my brain ever since. Yeah. Do you think this, um, this medium is kind of where, where we're headed with music? don't know about that possibly I think it's more that there it's so much more accessible now to experiment with this kind of thing Mm -hmm. so to sort of run off with computer graphics and and play around with them and build something is much much easier than it was even 10 years ago to do um because of you know the speed of processing on computers and the availability of these kind of open source tools and stuff so I think it's just that people are able to explore um, kind of multi-sensory um, arts in a way that perhaps wasn't possible um, yeah. historically but it's in terms of where we're heading I don't know that's um, right yeah <laughs> that's a big well, question also, that is that is a big question I think also um, from like the audience perspective, we the audiences are far different now in mm-hmm. the present than they than they ever have been in the past. I mean, our our patterns of life are so different now that mm-hmm. I think you know working in this medium it more reflects uh, or or it, it connects more with what you know our our pace of life, our speed of life, how how we interact with technology on a daily basis. Anyway, mm-hmm. yet. 
I think the vast majority of composers are still writing in a format that was meant for audiences of 300 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we aren't, maybe we aren't responding fast enough to the change in change in audience. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of struggle with the question of audience in general. I have to say, um, I mean, doing the care event was fantastic, but I find putting my pieces on in that kind of concert environment a little bit odd. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit them to me and I think I'm I'm happier when when they're kind of in installation and people can sort of drift in and out and take what they want from it I think this sort of formal let's sit down and, and watch and listen to something all the way through just doesn't really doesn't really work that well with my work I guess well and is that is that one of the reasons you're doing things in in the expanded audiovisual format so that you aren't necessarily controlling the audience's or the viewer's experience but rather you just create an environment for yeah. them to have to have an experience yeah absolutely yeah yeah and i'm hoping that it's quite a an immersive environment i think that's one of the things that i'm most interested in at the moment is creating this feeling of immersion through kind of audiovisual experience um and i think a big part of that as well is the the space i think all the pieces that i'm writing at the moment are intended to look and sound different and behave differently um in different mm-hmm. spaces so um, I think that's one of the other things that I'm kind of most interested in, to explore at the moment. Well, to jump off on that, let's talk about uh, your piece Pleton, okay. um, which is, as we mentioned before, is for the expanded audiovisual format. And um, it's, you know, two screens directly across from each other. And you said it, it works best if it's in, you know, a very dark black kind of a very dark space. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so you can like you you might be able to get reflections um, from one screen, you know, on uh, not on the adjacent walls or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you do have that kind of um, immersive yeah. experience. Yeah, I love I love the visuals in this piece. They kind of I think like you said earlier, you well did you say that you had a kind of an idea of a very zoomed in version and a very zoomed out yeah, version of absolutely. kind of the same thing. Yeah. And that that's kind of what I like about it. They kind of flicker and they're constantly playing with focusing and blurring and shifting color. And I mean, it, is that also, is, is this piece just like Alakas? Is it also tied to um, res- the visuals are tied to responding to music in some way? Yes. Yeah. It's a very similar process it's just the manifestation is quite different um this piece is visually much more i guess static in some ways than than alakas um but it's particularly when you see the very close-up um sort of quarter circular section of one of the one of the larger mm-hmm. structures um you should be able to see that there are like hundreds and thousands of of so although it is a circular form, it's made up of hundreds and thousands of um, squares that overlap with each other. Mm-hmm. And the the sort of in expanded format, you should be the screen should be very large in comparison to you. So you can get right. like kind of dig into those visuals a bit more and sort of see these complex structures that from a distance are, are much less, much less apparent, but are still are still there and are still functioning. What is what does the title Pleton mean? It means apparently in Dutch it means to uh, squash or crush or flatten. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that that definitely connects. <laughs> well, the what? there's a there's a peculiar story behind that one as well. But um, I have a thing. I I spend a decent amount of time going to various places to do festivals and concerts and things. And when I go places, I like to to buy a toy from that place uh-huh. um so from bowling green i bought a magic eight ball at the uh <laughs> <laughs> mostly because i've always wanted a magic eight ball but um also because okay. it's just my thing um and the source material for the uh, audio side of pleton was when i was in the hague uh, in the netherlands about five years ago i found this in this crazy toy shop these um kind of well, it was this thing called the Happy Face Family, which was these, <laughs> <laughs> which was these big and small um, balloons filled with corn flour that you're supposed to squidge to kind of release stress. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And they okay. had they all had smiley faces and hair made of wool, and they were just the most ridiculous looking thing I've ever seen in my life. So I bought them, thinking these are amazing. I'm just going to keep them around and squidge them to relieve my considerable stress. I sound very stressed, don't I? Uh, <laughs> but 
when I took them out of the packaging at home, because they're filled with cornflour, they make this incredible crunching sound. Yeah. Um, and so all of the source material for that piece is just about 10, 15 seconds of me very close mic'd squishing one of these um one of these stress balls, one of these happy faces. Um, and it's just because of the sort of proximity to the microphone, you get so much kind of nice, deep um, crunching. In fact, someone once asked me if it was a Harley Davidson. <laughs> it's really not a Harley Davidson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you get that, you get that crunching. And I think you also get a lot of the, the rubber quality from the outside of it. right? Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. I wanted to, with the visuals kind of reflect this sense of kind of squashing and compressing and, and, and flattening um, that is kind of, you can sort of hear in the sound. Um, even if you're not totally aware of what that sound is. Well, I think you can anyway, but mm-hmm. yeah. What's your, what's your process usually like for creating an, a, an AV piece? I mean, which kind of, which side takes the longest for you, the music, the musical side or the vid- visual side, or do, or do you just completely work uh, in, in parallel? I try to work in parallel as much as possible. Cause for me, part of working sort of audio visually is, is trying to conceive or compose both things at once. So mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking, okay, I've made my sound and now I'm going to make visuals to go along with it or vice versa, um, to sort of think about how the two are related um, throughout uh, the process. Um, with Platin, I see, I don't, I don't remember which came first then. And I don't remember, I think I was tinkering with both at the same time and I think they both mm-hmm. took an equally long period of time. Alicast was a little different because the both sides of the visuals have sort of semi-chaotic, semi-random behavioural patterns that they, they can choose to do certain things at certain times if they want to. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had my... had some sense of the sound material I was going to use and I had a sense of the, the visuals and I just built the the left screen, the complex, the more complex stuff um, with its kind of chaotic behaviours built in. And then I ran a full render of that and noticed exactly when those unexpected behaviours happened and then used those timings to intervene with the sound material in different ways. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. was kind of like a almost kind of a feedback process between the two Right, yeah. So I think usually they they sort of they happen simultaneously. If one's going to take longer than the other, it's usually the visuals. I seem to settle on sound quicker than I'll settle on visuals. And uh-huh. maybe it's just because sometimes, especially if it's quite complicated, I have to run a processing sketch for a couple of hours before I'll really get a sense of what it's actually going to look like. And then I'll have to go back and rejig the code and start it again and then play it again. So <laughs> I think it's oh, just, man. it's just a quite, quite a long winded process, but I usually have a, have a sense of what I want it to look and sound like um, very early on. It just takes a while to get there. Just listening to that kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the, what you read about, you know, working with something like, the RCA Mark II or something, you know, like set up all your controls and, you know, all right, hit, hit go, let it, let it run for <laughs> yeah. hours and hours and hours, come back. And then you hear, Meh. oh, that's, that's not what I wanted. Okay. Let's start over. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically like that. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's listen to, again, just the, uh, just the audio for your piece, Pleton. And if you're interested, please go to Vimeo, search Louise Harris, or go to louiseharris.co.uk.
So let's finally talk about just a piece. Uh, it it feels it feels it's like it's kind of a letdown, but just audio. Oh man! <laughs> I know. Who'd have thought? <laughs> right. So this piece is just called Sis underscore M one. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what's what's that title about? Uh, <laughs> this is from a time when I struggled with titles, I think. Because it kind of seems like just, you know, just the file name designation yeah. you would put on, oh, well, this is just SysM1, this is SysM2, this is SysM3, you know. Yeah, and there are, th- those exist as well. So, um, yeah, that is basically, <laughs> that is basically what it was. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this is an audio-only piece, but it had a visual method for constructing it. So it is audio-visual, but in a, in a sort of reverse way. Um, Mm -hmm. and the way that this was made was, um, I, in the latter stage of my PhD, again, working with Dave Moore, who I was talking about earlier on, built a spatialization system, um, based on, or based in processing. So allowing me to kind of trigger objects, um, in processing trigger, usually circles or squares, um, to sort of bounce around in space, collide with each other and then disappear. Um, and then send that, the vector data from that out to uh, PD, where I did vector-based amplitude panning based on the data coming from processing via open sound control. Um, so attached a sound to each one of those objects and had the sounds spatialized across eight channels based on the, the visual input. Mm-hmm. Um, did that make sense? It's time, kind of tough so to explain. I guess, I guess um, are you, uh, like, how are you... B- b- Okay, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> so uh, you have you have a sound that's attached to a geometric shape, and then you are able to kind of move that geometric shape around in a it, like uh, basically on a screen. Yeah. And then and then whatever sound is attached to that shape will obviously move with it. Yeah. Um, so that's how you're doing the, the eight channel spatialization. So yeah. when you are working with, um, the, the visual element of it, is that, how are you controlling that? Uh, it's just in, again, in processing and it's just simple. Um, I have a key that will trigger each object and, um, each object has a behavior associated with it. So most of them are just circles or kind of clusters of things that circles uh-huh. that spheres i guess that that appear and then can bounce around this kind of constrained space and collide with each other um and in fact in the piece you can hear a lot of kind of relatively high frequency pinging every now and then yeah and the pinging is a, collect, a collision detection so when a when two objects have hit each other you get the you get the ping um so yeah so you just you trigger them they do their thing they have a life cycle so they exist for a certain period of time and then and then they go away um, but the other thing that we did was, which is kind of, I think what makes this in eight channels kind of intriguing is we added in a small amount of, um, Doppler effect based on the, mm-hmm. the speed and the, the, um, trajectory of the objects. So as mm-hmm. they move around in eight channels, you really get a very, um, sort of clear sense of motion because of this Doppler, um, effect. In fact, I had it performed at, um, uh, ZKM a couple of years ago in their big massive 64 speaker dome thing mm-hmm. um, and yep. the sense of motion was almost kind of it was a bit much <laughs> it was almost kind of, <laughs> I felt a bit travel sick at one point I was like oh right. it's going too far um, well yeah. I mean even though even though we are going to just listen to this piece in stereo I think uh, due to you know the the coding that went into it and and maybe the Doppler effect as well. I still think you get a great deal of motion, even in stereo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you you do have the sense that things are things are really really moving, and they're moving in a in a in a directed way. That's not that's not just you know oh this is just left right. You do get a sense of three dimensions even in stereo. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the plan. So um, yeah, so yeah, so, so again, it was. I think in my PhD, I talked about um, the sort of different types of audiovisual relationship, and this this for me is still an audiovisual piece, even though it only has a, a an audio output, because the sort of visual way that that it's that it's kind of conceived is is so important to how it eventually ends up ends up sounding. Right, and I mean, 
I'm just I just have this uh, this image of you basically on a like an iPad or something, just kind of throwing <laughs> throwing shape, shapes around. Is that how it worked, or did you have to like kind of uh, put put everything into an automated process? Uh, it's kind of like that, but not as not as high tech as that. So it's literally just oh, kind okay. of it's just keys on a keyboard and and oh, okay. and yeah. So certain ones trigger certain things, and then I can move things with with arrow keys and stuff as well. And the mouse was involved too, but no, the touch OSC sadly didn't exist back in those days. So so it was kind I think of that would that would be cool though. Yeah, it would. Yeah, <laughs> maybe if I like, if I feel like it one day, I might build a build an iPad version, and we can all play. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- yeah, that that I think you should do that. That'd be awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I'm on research leave at the moment, so maybe I can fit yeah, it. Yeah, so you got tons of time, tons of time. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I I love the sound world that you created in this piece. I mean, I think the the sounds are are so rich in their kind of spectral content, despite starting off and as kind of like sine wavy, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Um and. I think what I was uh, listening to you described as a ping when something when when two sounds collide with each other. Mm-hmm. But it's in those it's in those moments that it's kind of like the sounds almost open themselves up and reveal these complex like inner workings, and then they get swallowed back up and return to a kind of sine wave texture. So, I I mean I don't want I don't want you to give away your secrets, but how <laughs> did you how did you come up with that particular sound? You know what. What is, is that just, you, you kind of built that reaction into the system and that, and that's what comes out or was that sound? Yeah. So it's just simply that there's the little marker gets sent across to say there's a collision has happened. Um, and, um, it was just a little, a little blip, a little sine wave blip that, that happened very, very quickly. Um, but there's a, there's a whole load of different sounds, um, in this piece. A lot of them are synthetic, but a lot of them are not um, I think mm-hmm. the for me some of the richest material is um, I have a very very out of tune Victorian piano harp mm-hmm. um, that I took into a very reverberant cupboard and played around with. Um, <laughs> a reverberant cupboard. A reverberant cupboard, yeah. Which was do they, a... do they have that setting on many reverbs? Or... <laughs> I'm pioneering it. Um, yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, it was the house that I lived in in Sheffield at the time. It was this really old kind of terraced house that just happened to have a cupboard under the stairs that was had all these really peculiar angles in it and had been painted with this very reflective white paint. And I went in there with my piano harp and it made this really lovely sound in there, even though it was horribly out of tune and kind of a bit, as we would say, knackered. Um, so <laughs> so a lot of the sound material is is based from from that. I had a lot of fun in my reverberant cupboard with my piano harp. Awesome. Well, let's listen to it. This is Sis M1. Thank you. 
final you kind of already talked about this uh earlier but i did want to i did want to ask the question i always ask uh which is how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life i know you kind of have you you are in two worlds or rather you are in a world that is a combination of two things but you know how did how did you get to that place um, I was thinking about this actually at the weekend because I spent Sunday um, playing with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra um, in with uh, I have a, a circuit bent toy that I call the pink thing, which is which is this amazing right? Thing. Oh my god, I completely forgot to talk about this. <laughs> yes, let's talk about the pink thing. Cause this this sounded amazing when you told it to me at BG. Um, so the pink thing is a it's this horrible pink contraption that I found in a charity shop in London that was released in the late 90s early 2000s as a supposed to be a way of getting teenage girls into DJing so it's called it's <laughs> its official title is the groovy chick mixing deck which is just the oh worst my thing God. um and so it has a little a little deck on it that you can twiddle back and forth and it has a little keyboard that pops out the side and it has buttons and you can tr- trigger all these demos and stuff and you can yeah, it's it's a horrible thing, um, but an amazing thing at the same time. <laughs> so um, when I bought this in London, a friend of mine who I was working with at the time, a guy called John Ferguson, who's now head of music tech at the Brisbane Conservatoire in Australia, um, was really into um, kind of circuit bending and hardware hacking. And he's like, let's take it to bits and, and do some stuff with it. And we just put in um, simple control over the just a variable resistor over the um, the clock speed. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically you can slow it way way down or you can speed it way way up and that's that's kind of it but because it makes so many different types of sounds in the first place it actually creates a really broad palette of stuff that you can do but anyway this is tangential to my to my <laughs> what I was doing at the weekend was um, I just wrote a very short little sketchy piece for the strings of the symphony orchestra and the pink thing which is the first time mm-hmm. I've played it in inverted commas with um uh, acoustic instruments and I was telling my mum about this and she was saying I cannot believe that we paid for like 10 years of flute <laughs> lessons and <laughs> all those living years of university and orchestra and choir and everything else and now you're sitting on stage with the symphony orchestra playing a toy like yep <laughs> that's me um, that's my life <laughs> so yeah in answer to your question I knew I'd get there eventually um, when I was four I was at school, I was in um, assembly in my, one of my youngest classes and I heard someone play the flute. I imagine probably very badly, um, but because they were only about eight themselves. But I thought this yeah. just thing made this incredible sound. And I went home and said to my mum, mum, I want to play the flute. I was only four. And uh, she said, well, that's nice. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of thing was very expensive and we couldn't afford for me to do it. So I had to wait until I was 11 and could learn through school. So I was like seven years of desperate frustration. Oh, I man. need to play the flute and I can't. I had to make do with my tiny Casio keyboard and the recorder. For um... <laughs> So instead, uh, from the age of six, I had this tiny little Casio keyboard that played um, all kinds of demos, things like uh, Wham's uh-huh. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Um, yes. <laughs> and it had a great feature where you could play the demo and then you could play it again um, without the melody and you could figure out the melody yourself and play it along. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I learned um, to play by ear. And then through doing the recorder, I started to learn notation. And then when I was 11, I started playing the flute. And then it just kind of took off from there. And it got to the point where before I went to university, I was just constantly playing music. Like all weekend, I was in countless different orchestras every night after school I was playing at school I was playing all the time I was in all sorts of different kind of ensembles and things um and then I think through initially playing with the Casio keyboard at the age of six I got really into writing my own music as well and when I went to university I knew that I wanted to sort of specialize in composition so I started studying with Robert Saxton at at Oxford and then it just all kind of went from there so so that's how I got into music, <laughs> by means of the Casio awesome. keyboard. <laughs> it's always the Casio keyboard, yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> which is still in my loft, and I kind of am tempted to 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 circuit bend it, but I don't think I can quite bring myself to. I think I'll just stick with Wham. Mm. Are they still available? Could you find? Could you just find another one? Yeah, but they're quite expensive, uh, actually. I have periodically yeah. looked into it. I mean, not not in the grand scheme of things. They're not like a MacBook expensive. They're about thirty pounds, right. but still. <laughs> but for a Casio keyboard, <laughs> yeah. they're <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
Well, awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Louise. Before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find uh, find your work online? Uh, yes, you can find it at louiseharris.co.uk. Or if you just Google me, I will come up eventually. The first Louise Harris that usually comes up is a woman who spent £10,000 on a wedding for her dog. But... Uh... <laughs> But that wasn't me. I can I can attest to that. So um, if you can get past her and just keep looking down the page, I'll be there eventually. It usually helps if you put Louise Harris composer or Louise Harris composer, audio visual. Yeah. I'll, I'll pop up so you won't see the dog lady then probably. And are are you on are are you on Twitter or anything like that? I am on Twitter. Yes, um, I think my handle is Doctor Wheeze. So <laughs> Doctor Wheeze. Doctor Wheeze. All right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you can find me there as well. Although I'm very, awesome. I'm rubbish at Twitter, if I'm honest. I never, I'm never on there. <laughs> but you can Fair look enough. at pictures well, we'll, of me if you want. Well, I'll tweet at you and you'll, you'll get more invested in it. Yay, okay, good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Louise. Okay, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.